Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Begin by Soho CRM. So let's face it, you don't have to use spreadsheets, notepads, reminders, and 10 other apps to manage your customer information like you may be doing today. Whether you're a startup, a small business, or a freelancer, did you know that you can manage your business as effectively as any large corporation? With the current market, it's more critical than ever to retain existing customers while also staying on top of your sales pipeline. And you can do this with your business today by saying no to spreadsheets. Begin supercharges your workflow and helps you engage prospects, manage pipelines, and close deals without skipping a single beat. It has a super simple drag and drop interface, which will have you up and running in under 30 minutes. All listeners of our podcast can get up to 15 days for free, the free trial, along with a 50% off and up to $100 when you sign up. Just go to Soho.to forward slash begin Pantera Advisor and get started. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So super excited about the guest that we have today. I mean, he's been building, scaling, and financing for over eleven years his company. So imagine all the lessons learned, but quite the rocket ship. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Sean Duffy. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Happy to be here. So originally born in Colorado. So give us a little bit of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Yeah, I mean, Colorado, it's fun. It's an amazing state. If you haven't been there, I recommend it. Uh, I think, to be honest, I took it for granted. Uh, it's just stunningly beautiful. So I grew up in Colorado Springs, um, uh, you know, fell in love with technology. I was always kind of a computer geek by heart, but like science as well. And, um, you know, had a great childhood there and then went off to school uh, in New York City. That's amazing. So how was, how was that change? Because New York City is... It's a city that, you know, there's a lot of, of, of activity and intensity. So was it like a, a, a big, you know, kind of like shock for you? Uh, you know, it was in a great way. So I went to Columbia University and uh, that's a great school if you want to explore a city. You know, it's not the best school if you want to go to big football games. But, uh, uh, you know, I had an, an awesome time there. I did, you know, I had a lot of misconceptions about New York, which was fun to, uh, you know, get rid of, uh, you know, seeing it, seeing it and living there, you know, for, for four years. Now, out of all things, Sean, neuroscience. I mean, that's a, that sounds a little bit advanced. So why neuroscience? Uh, yes, I mean, neuroscience uh, is, uh, was just super interesting. I think it's a neat combination of psychology and biology, uh, you know, which is one of the things I was most attracted to. And it's just like, it's, a, it's a remarkable how the brain works. I mean, we're seeing it right now in the intersection between you know, computation and neural nets and you know, kind of mapping to how brains work and processing you know, vision for things like self-driving cars. So it felt like an area where there's going to be extraordinary amount of innovation. Um, uh, and, and one of the big mysteries where there's a lot yet to learn about biology. Now, you 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 always had that uh, idea of perhaps med school. You know, med school was in the background, but you decided to put that on hold and and then explore, you know, the labor market, you know, and, and going into Google. So how did you land in Google? What was that experience like? Yes, that's right. So I graduated in 2006. I uh, studied neuroscience, uh, did all my pre-med requirements, um, but it was always kind of a computer geek at heart. And 2006 was just this remarkable moment in Silicon Valley you know, ended up feeling like I had to either pick tech or healthcare. Um, it looked at job opportunities, saw a, a job at Google that looked pretty interesting. So, uh, you know, went off there um, and worked there for a couple of years. And I think I pretty quickly realized that the world was perhaps not as binary as I had thought. Uh, and there, you know, there may be a way to blend, um, 
uh, you know, tech and medicine in some capacity. And obviously you land in Harvard to do that, but not only med school, also the MBA. I mean, talking about complicating yourself with a ton of studying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So I enrolled in Harvard's MD MBA program, uh, thinking that I'd do something in technical healthcare. I wasn't quite sure what. And then, you know, in this kind of funny chain of events, they, as you progress through that curriculum, require you take an internship that blends business and medicine. And from my time in Silicon Valley, I know some people at IDEO, so came out there um, uh, to, to spend what I thought was going to be a summer, but, uh, you know, turned into, um, turned into Amada. And tell us about IDEO. What was, what was the deal with IDEO? And why did you decide that that was the best way to, to proceed? Yeah, so I, I mean, IDEO, if um, the listeners aren't familiar with, is an amazing design consultancy. Uh, and, you know, it's a great group of people that think very, very expansively about products or services. Um, at, at what I always say kind of is a first principles level of like, how does it literally fit into the person's home and their life and their context and, you know, emotional circumstances? And there's a very kind of a human meets, meets tech, meets experiences approach to, you know, developing product and the one that, you know, I actually think mapped quite well to neuroscience and psychology and some of the areas I was interested in. And um, so I thought that'd be fun to, to think through how you could apply some of that skill set to healthcare. And, uh, you know, I, I knocked on their doors like, hey, have you ever had a medical student intern? And they're like, no. And I was like, well, would you consider it? And they're like, sure. <laughs> so, so it just uh, came out. <laughs> That's so cool. Now, now, obviously, as they say, ideas, you know, they take time to incubate. You know, they're like dormant. You know, they're, we don't even know that they're there, but there are certain, you know, events that really trigger, you know, us and push us over the edge to really, you know, bring them to life. And that moment of screw it, let's do it. No, but uh, I guess being at IDEO too, you know, that perhaps, you know, allowed you to, to get, you know, that influence, no, of, uh, of wanting to do something of your own as well. And in fact, that's how you came up with, with your baby. So, so tell us about, you know, how did the idea, you know, incubate and what was that process of really bringing it to life? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it did lead to Amada Health. So the, the quick one-liner in Amada, we're a, a virtual care company. So I think it was like any other provider. But we focus on those disease areas where digital can make not just a little bitty difference, but an enormous difference in care and outcomes. And so for us, that's pre-diabetes, diabetes, hypertension, you know, musculoskeletal disease, you know, those areas where you need like lots of support between visits. And the concept was really generated with a reflection on where the market was at in 2011. And, you know, I'd be with my tech friends and, uh, you know, kind of the early days, the Fitbits and wearables, and I'd be with their medical school classmates and the two worlds thought very, very differently, you know, about the power of digital. So the idea was to build a convergence company that pulled in, you know, the best technologists and designers, but worked to uh, really earn the right to be a proper part of the healthcare system and focus on specifically what are you trying to achieve with digital and why is it better than the current kind of care environment in an in-person setting? And so, uh, you know, that led to our interest in, you know, metabolic disease and prediabetes and, you know, diabetes risk, uh, you know, to start and uh, just kind of work to build, you know, the, the, you know, one of the most evidence-based digital health companies out there. Now, what was that process of spinning the company out? Um, you know, that, that was just a uh, complex, but, but very manageable because of the wonderful people at IDEO, uh, and kind of neither one of us had done that before. <laughs> so, you know, there were kind of <laughs> lessons to learn and things to think through and areas where we saw the same, uh, you know, saw things the same way or we had to kind of overcome uh, you know, differences, but, um, uh, you know, we, we shared a conviction that something like this should and could exist in the world. Uh, you know, it was an honor to be in a position to work to make it happen. So Omada Health, for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model? How do you guys make money? So uh, we contract with either self-insured employers or health plans to essentially reimburse Omada's services for their employees or their members. 
Um, and, you know, think of us like really any other provider. So let's imagine you have diabetes. Um, in a normal care environment, maybe you're seeing your doctor every six weeks or every six months and you have a 15 minute visit to cover a million topics. One is your diabetes. Um, you know, at Amato, what happens is we get you a set of you know, hardware and devices. We pair you with an entire care team of a coach, a diabetes educator, um, have kind of a specific curriculum to your needs and just bring you quicker to your diabetes goals in a more simple way. So the revenue model is, you know, we share that this exists and then we work on the back end to publish all the clinical studies, to align with all the guidelines, to figure out all the regulatory kind of infrastructure, to get it all paid for for you. So you never have to pull the credit card. Um, uh, you know, it's all fully covered. Um, and we just want to make sure that diabetes care, excellent diabetes care uh, is accessible to all. And uh, in your case, I mean, what, what were the early days like for, for a company like this? Uh, you, you know, it's interesting. I didn't know anything about the business of healthcare. I mean, in medical school, I never did the MBA piece. I, frankly, I didn't know anything about business. It was kind of, Amon is essentially my first job. I mean, I was an individual contributor to Google, like <laughs> making 55K a year, feeling like I was rich. But but I was, um, so, so I was super green. So the early days of Amato was like, literally every minute I felt like I was developing a new stress ulcer and like trying to just ramp a learning curve. I didn't know what a venture capitalist was. I'd never raised any money. Like I used to get nervous negotiating NDAs, all these things that seem, seem like so comical and silly, um, you know, back then. So it, it was really just like figuring it out in the early days and like how the heck the healthcare system even worked to imagine a world where we could even commercialize something like this. Yeah, because I mean, obviously there is a, a ton of regulation, you know, as well and all types of restrictions and limitations. So I'm sure it was quite the learning curve. So, so, so for a, for a company, you know, in, in healthcare, you know, it's, there's obviously a lot of restrictions and, and limitations and things like that. So I'm sure that for you, it was quite the learning curve in that regard as well. You know, healthcare is a very complex place to build a business. Um, and it's exciting if you really like to learn. So, you know, 11 years in, I'm the furthest thing from an expert in how the U.S. healthcare system works. Like I swear every single day I like overturn a stone. I'm like, oh, interesting. <laughs> like didn't, didn't know that's how that happened. Um, which is, you know, a really beautiful thing. It is extremely complex. And if you don't really want to think at that systems level, um, you can fall into traps that may get you into problems in a couple of years that you may not see, you know, early on. So number one tactic when people say, well, what, what are your, you know, what's your guidance on how to build an enterprise healthcare company is I, I kind of share back a belief system that there will never be shortcuts in this space. Like you're, you know, you've had companies try to like disrupt from the side and like, but, but I don't think that's possible. You have to just get super, super smart on how it actually works and figure out to, how to fit it. Like that scene in Apollo 13, where you've got like the round CO2 in the square hole and you've got to kind of connect the two with parts on the ship. It's like you can fit innovation in the US healthcare system, but boy, you have to learn and, and actually study the details. And I'm sure that also for you, navigating the uh, the sales cycle for an enterprise type of operation was also quite the uh, the learning. So, uh, so what have you learned, you know, on on really mastering those? Yeah, I mean, I think the the sales cycles in a risk inverse environment are uh, are long. Um, and so, you know, number one guidance I give to entrepreneurs is just you're not a startup. Don't call yourself a startup. You know, Omada was a six person company, and you know, when I'd introduce myself, I just call us a digital health company um, because it's it's very um, unattractive to buy from a startup if you're kind of one of these big risk averse, uh, you know, payers, plans, employers. Um, and 
that's appropriate because there is a lot of risk. There's a risk to them in working with a young company. So you've got to find a way to raise the capital to mature your operations and practices um, more quickly. Um, you know, I think that, you know, I probably put like a million dollars in our security program far earlier than you would in any other like, you know, segment. And that's because like during procurement, um, uh, you're going to go through the gauntlet. They have to like test your metal. It's really helpful to be SOC 2 type 2 earlier. Like you're, so there's this um, need early on to, uh, from a company standpoint, mature your ops in a way that makes you more ingestible. Uh, you know, as a partner to these big risk averse organizations. So that, that I think is one critical thing. And, and kind of the second is um, don't expect that you can shorten the sales cycles. It, they're long sales cycles. You have to just manage the business against it. So when you're thinking about capital needs, kind of your growth, your expectations, um, uh, assume that the sales cycles cannot be shortened and won't necessarily change and try to just, you know, ensure that you've got kind of the cash you need, um, uh, you know, you're setting the targets you need relative to that truth. And and for the, you were talking to you were talking about it earlier. I mean, capital. So, how much capital have you guys raised to date? Um, uh, just under five hundred million. Hey, that's a lot of zero, Sean. So, tell us about you know, like what has been the uh, the cycles, no, of uh, going from one you know round to the next. Yeah, no, it's been a, it's been a huge privilege to just see really all layers of the capital stack. Uh, you know, and how different investors think about businesses differently. Um, range from literally the first, you know, angel check where, you know, I, I didn't know like how to like, do you write me a check? Do you wire the money? Like, how does this even mechanically work? Because <laughs> someone I was I was trying to get his advisor was like, you know what, this is amazing. Can I invest? Like, sure. <laughs> so it's, it's literally just it's people and, and like, you know, and people, you have nothing, literally nothing. And you have a deck that you look back on, you're so embarrassed about. And, um, you know, fundamentally, I think they just believed in me and, you know, the, they saw something kind of the, the vision we had and you know chose to chose to take an enormous risk and then um you know later on up the capital stack it's you know it gets obviously more financial like you know where are you getting operating leverage like what's the long term like even margin profile of the business like what's like <laughs> um you know the uh um you know of course they still care about vision and mission but um it, you know it becomes a lot more about kind of the financials and the, and the performance and kind of long-term cash flows for and, and, and um you know potential for growth now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. As a founder, you need to always be in problem-solving mode and really being faced with challenging situations, whether it's with life or with the business itself, you need to find a way to find the, the better solution, the solutions that are going to help you to really overcome that roadblock. And a therapist, a therapist like, for example, the ones that BetterHelp matches you with could be a good option for you. And I mean, I remember, for example, for myself with relationships, with experiences, I've used therapy in the past and it really helped with unloading depression, anxiety. So BetterHelp is a really good solution. You could try it because it's convenient, it's accessible, it's affordable, and it's entirely online where you can get matched with a therapist that could be the right fit for you. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DealMakers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash DealMakers. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept 
really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. And what about on the early days? Because I know that the, that the Series C as well as the Series A was a little bit bumpy for yeah, you guys. Yeah, I kind of mentioned that. The, the um, first, first thing's just kind of a truth. Uh, you know, there is never a straight line to success. Uh, I've never seen it. So, you know, it's one of those where as an entrepreneur, you want to find a problem that you care so much about that you just like will be willing to get hit in the face repeatedly and just get right back up and say, nope, still gonna make it happen. Still gonna make it happen. And I think our, you know, our seed and A was kind of one of those moments where we had a lot of strategic interest really, really early on from kind of a large potential customer uh, at such a level that they were interested in perhaps leading our entire series A. We were open to having them an investor. We, we kind of wanted to make sure we had a path to stay independent and fulfill our mission. Um, Net net, what ended up happening was as we were going from seed to A, we had kind of a six month protracted, you know, negotiation and it was very, very complex between, you know, our desires, their desires, you know, us wanting to stay independent, them, you know, perhaps, you know, wanting kind of a path to think differently about the business. And it um it really basically blew up our series A and they decided, look, we're gonna compete. <laughs> Uh, and we're just, we're like, okay, no, you know, no problem. But then all of a sudden that was going to be a big customer. So it was like, we like lost our capital in our pipeline pretty quickly. And, and, you know, it's funny. You're like, what do you do? I mean, like, literally, it's taking so long. We're like, we're like a couple weeks of cash left. I mean, we're in a big company. We're like burning a ton, but we're like kind of at the end there. And, um, we're like funding some from our own bank accounts to like make payroll. And then, you know, we called up some of the seed investors and, you know, this was just kind of amazing. There's some people I, you know, I, I can't name, but a couple in particular, like heard the story and they're like, oh, how, wait, how quickly do you need? I'll, I'll put another 250 right now. And you're just like, you saved, you saved the business. And, and not, and others were like, oh, I don't know. Are you going to have anybody else join too? Like, is this an extension to nowhere? And it's, it's, it's funny. You, um, you reflect on how human, you know, this is and how, you know, Folks that have conviction and some capital um, that can really, you know, make a dream like Omada come true, uh, you know, for entrepreneurs and kind of resurrect, you know, the vision from, you know, very precarious situation. So, you know, we got, we got through it just fine. It was one of those where we're like, oh, no, like, what are we going to do here? <laughs> which, which every entrepreneur is, you know, every entrepreneur has been through because, um, again, it doesn't, doesn't ever come easily. Now, the last round that you guys did was the Series E. So obviously, big, big change, you know, as, as the company, but more importantly, the corporate structure and perhaps the board. No? So what have you learned about managing boards, too, as you go from one cycle to another? 
Oh, yeah, for sure. And that was an area where I had very little visibility. In fact, you know, I think I actually had the wrong belief system uh, in the early days because I'd never seen a board. I mean, I've never been on a board besides Armada's board. And, you know, in the early days, I kind of viewed it as my job to not add tasks to their plate. I'm like, look, these are super busy people. Like, I'll use as little of their time as, you know, as as possible here. I mean, yes, of course, if there's areas that they can add value, I mean, I'd like tap them on the shoulders. But that w- that was my, you know, psychology. As a company grows and your board grows, it, it changes where you have to build the mental model of your board as a team. And like anything, uh, productive, aligned, uh, you know, engaged team can deliver outsized results for the business. Uh, you know, that's kind of been a really neat transition. I mean, we didn't have a, a board chair. I had, uh, you know, someone I brought on as an independent honor that she accepted kind of the role of board chair when asked, um, because the board also needs leadership. It's a team like anything else. And then you have to, you know, create all sorts of really, you know, appropriate governance structures if you want to, you know, have at some point being public being an option. You have comp committees, you have, you know, nomination governance committees, you have audit committees, and, you know, sitting in those and observing those, you realize how really, really important they can, you know, they can be for the business. And so it becomes kind of a second level level of like, you know, culture and capabilities and thinking of, you know, how, how the board can best, you know, pull the company forward and help us ask the critical questions because, you know, you're, you're in the, the gopher hole, you know what I mean? You're, you wake up, you have an infinite to-do list. There's no way you're going to be able to take care of everything. And it's very helpful with people that have seen a lot of patterns to be like, how are you thinking about this? And sometimes you're like, perfect. I know the exact answer. Other times you're like, that is a very good question that we, we need to like take into strategy here. So um, yeah, it's changed completely. And in terms of people, you know, now that we're, we're talking about people here, how many people do you guys have in Amada? About 700. Wow. I mean, that's a lot of people. Now, now I guess uh, before really going into that, I want to ask you because incredible growth, you know, incredible the cycles that you guys have gone through, you know, whether it's the life cycle of the business or financing cycles to really, you know, get the company to where it is today. I guess for you, you know, as 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 the founder and 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 the one that is leading here uh, the operation, how do you think, you know, you've been able to keep up at the same pace as the company's growth? Because obviously, you know, you see this multiple times where unfortunately the founder, you know, is not at the same speed and, and it outpaces, you know, the, the founder itself. So how have you managed to really keep yourself at the same speed in parallel? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. Um, one is just having a, a real dedication to having a growth mindset. Um, and I love, there's like literally one attribute said like, what, what is it? What is the defining characteristic of you, Sean Duffy? It's like a love of learning. Like, I just, I love it. Like I thrive on, like, I just feel so good to learn. Like it's almost like a compulsion. So there's no better learning opportunity than being a CEO at various different stages of the business. So what I would do, my tactic was to try to find people who one or two years out were in the role and use them as mentors for a period of three months soak as much as possible from them and almost like rinse and repeat um, because you want someone that's close enough to where you're about to be that they still have fresh memories you know like so it's less helpful to Amada to you know for me to find you know a CEO who's a hundred thousand person company and that's like um, but it's more important to find someone who's kind of right ahead and so you you kind of cast that out um, the other is constantly ask yourself what the job might be like in the next chapter and what Omada might need from you um, in an evolved role. And then just put out a mandate where if you're, if you literally don't look back last year and you're not a little bit embarrassed about like your, your past self, uh, you know, something's wrong there. Um, and uh, that's been, that's been really fun. I mean, sometimes people ask you if you've been 11 years in Omada, like, 
a long time to be a CEO and are you bored? I'm like, no, no, because I've, I've actually, I've been like, I've had like four roles because the CEO role is completely different. Yeah, you know, CEO early days is very different than CEO now. And like literally relative to like my behaviors, like, you know, what I need to be doing, how to intersect and interact and support the organization. Like it all changes so much that it's a very different role. And it's been um, an extraordinary privilege to, to you know, lead the organization. And, and you know, it's, um, it's been a blessing that the board's fully supported, um, you know, my learning and growth and allowed me to make a you know, set of, of course, mistakes along the way. Now, 700 people is, is a lot of people. So uh, what, what have been, you know, some of the fundamental uh, pillars in there to really, you know, set up a culture that, uh, that people would really see themselves excited in the, in the future that they're living into? Yeah, the, the, you know, the, my observation is culture needs to go from, you know, a point where it's kind of okay for it to be implicit to make it very, very explicit. Uh, and, you know, you got to have like those values written down, you know, they need to be part of onboarding, you need to tie actions and behaviors to those values, they need to be in hiring processes, performance review processes, you know, not just on the website. Um, because, uh, you know, people come in with various, various different backgrounds. So there's kind of like a values thing that becomes very important to the business, um, you need a more crystalline strategy, to make sure everybody understands like where we're going, why, you know, how you need more, you know, infrastructure to kind of align goals against that strategy and against those objectives um, to, you know, allow um, cohesion across the company. And then uh, you, you need great leaders and managers. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I never quite appreciated like what it means to be a great leader until just watching, you know, watching Omada. And in our, all the most tricky situations as we scale the business, it almost always comes down to like that function or that team you know, uh, has a leader where, uh, they're not giving and pulling the best from the team, you know, in the ways that, you know, is, is needed. And so, uh, you know, the, the importance of leadership, you know, as you scale, because you, you, um, you know, you really can't do it alone. Like it has to be driven by incredible manage, managers and, and other leaders in the organization. And, and scaling, I mean, obviously the, the size of the operation that you guys have now is, is really remarkable, but you know, I'm sure that there was like many breakthroughs that you guys, you know, like uh, really experienced in order to really get to this level. So what would you say, you know, as you're looking back, you know, was probably the biggest, you know, that uh, that Omada, you know, went through? There's been a couple of like neat moments. Um, I remember this one where it's like, we just saw a lot of deals coming that we're going to deploy in Q1. And we're like, this is going to be so much different than anything we've ever done operationally. There are all these stories of like, companies at this scale, like all these like scaling missteps and like ops gone wrong. And, you know, in healthcare, if you burn the trust with your customers, uh, that can have strong, you know, reverberations. I remember literally we, we went through Q4 looking ahead into Q1 deployments and like they literally sketched out all the critical processes kind of as they stood at Armada and which ones, which ones could break. <laughs> what are the mitigations we should be thinking about like right now? If it does break, what's the escalation path to solve it quickly? Like almost at a pre-mortem. And let's imagine we just flopped Q1. Like, why did we flop? Like, what specifically happened? And it was kind of this fun moment where, like, literally, I remember at a QBR, we're like, we all need to, like, once we get through this, we all need T-shirts that'll say, like, I survived Q1. <laughs> I forget which year it was. Um, but it was, <laughs> it was a nice galvanizing moment. And, and, and you know, you, you just cannot, you, you got to hit your customer commitments. So, and it, everything really worked. Like, all the planning, like, kicked into gear. You know, there are a lot of nights and weekends, um, but uh, like, you know, to our customers, like, okay, it works. <laughs> we deployed just fine. So that was kind of one, one moment I remember a lot. 
Now, now imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Omada Health is fully realized. What does that world look like? Uh, yeah, it's super specifically. And I tell this to the company, I tell this externally. We need to run hard until tomorrow's epidemiologists like notice a bend in the condition areas you know that we're treating. They look at the the epi of the country and like, oh, what, what, why did diabetes outcomes get better? Funny. That's strange because we didn't expect that. And then they unpack it and it's Omada that did it. So, I mean, I'm, I'm so proud of where we've come from. We now have over, what, 1,700 employers we work with enrolled over 700,000 members. It's great. But, you know, anytime a spotlight's shown on Omada, I always remind that our entire category has not done anything yet. I mean, you you got like 30 million people with diabetes alone in the U.S., you know, about 70 million with metabolic risk and prediabetes, you know, the, the low end. And so, you know, we got to keep running hard until we're, we're enrolling millions of people a year because um, uh, that's, that's what's going to be required. And we've made zero progress across the country at critical, you know, uh, uh, you know quality measures in diabetes. It's, uh, it's been a very, very tough one. Now, imagine I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. You know, I bring you back perhaps, you know, to that moment where, you know, you just joined IDEO, you were coming out of Harvard of, of, of doing your studies and, and you have the opportunity of giving that younger Sean, one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? You know, it's going to sound so tactical, um, but it's so much more important than I ever thought. It's focus obsessively about your pricing. You know, the, the price point, the revenue model, how the revenue comes in, you know, the characteristics, the reliability, um, like the, you know, how the margin profile of your cohorts changes. It's like, We've got our pricing dialed in now, but um, our early pricing model was not supportive of um, either efficiency or optimal, you know, growth in the way that it could have been. Um, and you know, we made all sorts of mistakes. Like, you know, one kind of classic one in enterprise. I mean, when you're when you're a procurement lead, that you know, as a buyer, like your goal is to try to shave ten percent off uh, whatever vendor comes your way or ex targets. I mean, you literally have like expectations against it. So. If you know that, you should probably like allow for your pricing to be able to accommodate that versus being like, look, we can't. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's like little things like that. I'd be like, Sean, Larry, become a savant on pricing. It's so much more of a lever than I ever imagined. I love it. Now, Sean, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, just email me. It's just a S-C-A-N uh, at omadahealth.com. Um, uh, you know, I always, I always help any entrepreneur. I've never turned down an ask. Um, so yeah, always, always happy to help. Well, Sean, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us. Oh, yeah, honor, honor to be on. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the great conversation. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.